Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, we've been around Wildwood, back from our time in Brazil. I've uh, been back here for a little over a year, and uh, it just seems like home. Uh, I started attending Wildwood back, I, I should, probably shouldn't say this because I know it'll date me even uh, more than my appearance already does, but back in the 80s, early 80s, uh, shortly after Bruce got here. So it's been a little over 30 years. Uh, but 20 plus of those years have been spent in Brazil, and it's just been a privilege to be able to serve the Lord in Brazil, but also serve the Lord as uh, emissaries uh, sent out by Wildwood and serving as an extension of this body. Uh, now to be able to come back and to spend a little bit more time here, get to know uh, more people, has just been a real uh, treat for us this past, uh, past year. Um, I want to start out with a, a story that actually doesn't come from Brazil, but it's another place that we've served. Uh, we took a year and a half leave of absence in the middle of our time uh, back in 99, uh, 2000, 2001, and we went to Amman, Jordan, and we were serving in the Middle East and uh, trying to reach out to, uh, to Muslims to show the love of God, and it was just a very, very special time for our whole family. Um, but the story more or less comes from that part of the world. Um, it's a story of a traveler, and the traveler who is wandering through the desert and is kind of on his last legs, and he um, uh, stumbles and finds that there's a, a lamp uh, buried, half buried there in the sand, and pulls it out and begins to... Uh, uh, smooth it out, you know, takes the sand off, and lo and behold, what comes out? It's a genie. Have y'all heard this story before? Yeah, I think everybody has. Um, anyway, the genie comes out, and you know how it goes. So the genie grants three wishes. It's always three wishes. Um, sometimes the guy just kind of blows the first one, blows the second one, and may even blow the third one, depending on who's telling the story and uh, kind of what their emphasis is. Uh, sometimes the guy gets one of the, the wishes right, uh, but there's always three wishes. And um, the interesting thing about the story is that probably all of us were attracted to that because we would love to be that guy, you know, not necessarily wandering through the desert, but sometimes we feel like that, uh, but just to be, have that opportunity to wish for something and think that it's going to come true. Um, you know, we're, we're fresh on the heels of uh, January 1st, and New Year's resolutions are very, I shouldn't even bring that up because I've already broken mine. Don't ask about what they are. Uh, next year, there's always next year. But New Year's resolutions, are, we don't like them so much because it's a lot of work. You know, we have to discipline ourselves, and we have to kind of, you know, daily do something different into our routine. And um, this is quite a bit different. When you talk about a genie and a lamp, it's, it's just wishing, and then it comes true. It's so much easier. And who wouldn't like to have that opportunity? Maybe, you know, a different job, um, better grades, get the GPA pulled back up, um, a relationship that begins to take off, um, some other desire, maybe paying some bills, getting uh, some little extra cash uh, coming in, uh, whatever it is, just personal peace. Uh, we all have our lists of things that we would like to work on or apply ourselves to, uh, something that would perhaps be different at the end of this year than the way it is right now. Um, Whatever your list is, just think about that for just a minute. Uh, maybe three things that you woke up this morning or are still thinking, it would be great 
if uh, these three things were to come about during the course of this coming year? Different question, perhaps a little harder. What if there were just one thing? What if there was just one thing that you could see as a a difference maker? Uh, What would your priority be? Well, the story that I want to begin with, uh, it's actually a biblical story. It doesn't talk about a lamp or a genie, um, but it does talk about three wishes. And three wishes not by one person, but actually by three different groups, um, three different people that come up, and they express what their wish is. And each one has this single opportunity, and we can learn lots from uh, them as they interact with uh, Uh, different people, and express those wishes. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, open them right now. We'll open it right now to Mark chapter 10. And we'll kind of just talk through this passage a little bit. It's a narrative passage, Jesus and his disciples. And we will see uh, three different groups come up with these wishes. Let me just set the table a little bit before we get into uh, the main part of this message. Um, Jesus is is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been on his way uh, on the path uh, for several chapters now. In fact, the highlight, uh, kind of the the pivot point of the gospel of Mark, uh, we find in chapter 8 when Peter gives his dramatic confession. You know, who do men say that I am? Uh, And Peter kind of lists off the different options. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that great confession, the the basic essential confession for all Christians. He says, you are the Christ. You're nothing less than the Messiah, God's chosen one, the one sent into the world. But the interesting thing is that in chapter 8, Peter still did not know what the Messiah meant. Uh, He did not know exactly what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. In fact, uh, just a couple verses after that dramatic confession, uh, we see Jesus... Uh, being rebuked by Peter uh, because he was talking about his death and his suffering. And so Peter pulls him aside and says, no, you can't talk like that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, So Peter really didn't have a a clear idea of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. So for the past couple chapters, that's what Jesus has been teaching. Uh, Really two things. Uh, One, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And two, what it means for the disciples to follow Jesus as the Messiah. So it's basically a school of discipleship that they're in right now. They're, they're following Jesus. Uh, Jesus is steadily going, getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. They're just, just about uh, within eyesight of Jerusalem, just a few miles away. And uh, Jesus is driving home some of the final lessons in this school of discipleship. In fact, the, the scene is, is somewhat tense because they are so close, and it's, it's an urgency that you begin to sense. Uh, we know that the Pharisees, for example, have already put out uh, an order uh, that Jesus should be uh, located and brought before him, before them. Uh, the, the, uh, the Romans as well uh, are getting a little bit nervous. Pilate is, has been hearing this talk about the king of the Jews uh, and is wondering what all that means. That's a, that's a direct threat to him. Uh, Herod has already put to death John the Baptist, uh, and the disciples keep getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. There's a a garrison of soldiers that's been stationed there because of the Passover, uh, and they're thinking, we're getting ready to march right into the middle of it. 
So Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 32, it says that the disciples were both astonished at Jesus' determination, and they were afraid. Uh, They could see what was getting ready to happen, and even though Jesus didn't demonstrate this fear, they were afraid. So um, Jesus uh, does nothing to calm their fears at this point. In verse 33, he, uh, he offers what's the third prediction of his suffering and death. And just, just look at the verbs that he presents, uh, the disciples that are beginning to question, are we able? And Jesus says, uh, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be spit upon he will be flogged. He will be killed. There's no encouragement in there. He does end with the, the note that there will be a resurrection, but the disciples are probably beginning to really question what's going on. So this is the third prediction that Jesus offers. Um, and then we get to the first of these wishes. And in a literary sense, it's, it's a complete... Uh, complete transition, a non-sector, that you don't really expect this at all. We, we know that when Peter heard this first prediction, he came along and he at least understood it in, in his own terms, and he pulls Jesus aside and says, you can't talk like that. But now James and John step up to the plate, and they also have heard this prediction, and it's amazing what comes out of their mouth at this point. Verse 35, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Okay, now let's pause right here. Uh, Think about what they're asking. It's... It really boggles the mind at this point. On the one hand, you would have to say they are just as inattentive as you can imagine. Uh, Did they not hear what Jesus had just said? Perhaps they're thinking, maybe it won't be all that bad. Maybe he'll overcome. Jesus is a miracle worker, after all. Uh, Maybe he'll be able to do some miracle and get out of this situation, and it won't, won't come about like he's just described it. Uh, perhaps some other outcome will, will come about, and maybe we'll still kind of be there at his right and his left, the second and third in command, and uh, it'll be better than what he's describing. Complete lack of attention to what Jesus, or lack of faith in what Jesus is saying. Or it could be, and I think this is probably more likely, a complete lack of sensitivity. That they're thinking not of Jesus and his plight, uh, his, the drama that's getting ready to be acted out, but they're thinking of themselves. This is uh, maybe similar to the, the two brothers that were called into uh, their father's room. Uh, he's on his deathbed, and the two kind of look at each other knowingly, and they turn to the father, and one asks for the keys to the house, and the other asks for the keys to the car. No, no that's, that's, that's not appropriate. And, you know, the really scary thing, and this is a commentary from Mark Twain, uh, he says that it's as if these uh, two were hoping to fill a vacancy in the Trinity. 
maybe they did understand that Jesus was getting ready to die and they wanted to take his place. They felt like they were able. So they, they expressed this wish before Jesus and we're not surprised by the answer that Jesus gives to them. Uh, surprised probably only in the fact that he was as patient as he was. He, he doesn't reprove them or put them in their place or belittle them or, or make fun of that request, but he just says, you don't know what you're asking for. In verse 38. And he uses two images here, uh, two idioms. He says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And each of those idioms has, they're very similar because they have two purposes each. Uh, there's, a, there's a common expression of uh, if you drink my cup, it means that you're kind of identified with me. Uh, we would say, can you walk a mile in my sandals or in my, my boots or, or something like that, a more modern expression. Uh, so it's the identification, and baptism certainly has that idea as well. If you're baptized into something, that means you're identified fully uh, with that program. So there's the idea of identification, and I think that's what the disciples picked up upon here. But there's a second uh, image that's communicated, especially for people that are familiar with the Old Testament. And it's the idea that the, both the cup and baptism are images that denote suffering. The cup has been poured out. It's God's wrath that's been poured out upon mankind's sin. And baptism is another image that is very prevalent in the Old Testament that communicates that same thing. So Jesus is asking something at one level that the disciples respond to, and yet he has another meaning, a little deeper meaning in mind as well. And the disciples in verse 39, they answer, we can, yes, sir, like good soldiers, uh, we're, we're, we're with you to the end. We can do this. And Jesus responded, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Both James and John, we know from the Scriptures and from uh, history, would suffer a martyr's death. Uh, James was probably the first of the, the 12. In Acts chapter 12, it tells us that, that he, uh, he died a martyr's death. John uh, was exiled on an island. We, Revelation tells us that, and, and we assume that all the rest of the disciples were, had, had been martyred or, or passed on by that point. Uh, so John apparently was martyred after all the others. So they did drink the cup in a sense, and, and they were baptized with its baptism. But to take Jesus' place, even Jesus himself couldn't guarantee that. That was God's sovereign decision. And Jesus was not about to usurp the authority of God the Father. He knew that, the God, that God the Father determined who's who in his kingdom. And he respected that and left it with the Father. So these two disciples basically wasted their, their, their audience with Jesus, their, their wish, their, their, their chance to express this deep and burning desire that they had. It, it's not hard to, to figure out maybe even some of the motivation that they had when they came to Jesus. Um, 
They're thinking, you know, we are long-term disciples, some of the first to be called among the 12. Um, not only part of the 12, but we're uh, part of the three, the inner circle. And Peter's already been put in his place, so that just leaves the two of us. Perhaps they're thinking of the talent that they had because uh, they were known as the, the sons of thunder, the great preachers, the, the zealous disciples. They had run a small business. They were fishermen uh, with multiple boats and servants. Uh, they were administrators. They were leaders. They probably thought about the connections that they had. There was some sort of a connection with a high priest. They had an inn uh, with some of the religious leaders of the day. And then there's the family connection family connection, because uh, Matthew tells us that when the two disciples came to Jesus, they didn't go alone. Uh, They brought their aunt, or rather, I'm sorry, their mother, Salome, who apparently was Jesus' aunt. So these guys were cousins, Jesus, James, and John, cousins, first cousins, second cousins. Uh, But they're probably thinking, Jesus might very well turn me down or turn us down, but surely he can't say no to Aunt Salome. I don't know what's going on. But they're, they're trying to think of all the different reasons why they should be granted this request. And perhaps the simplest of all is just to think, we got there first. Uh, we, we got the jump on all the other disciples. Well, it's interesting to, to look at the response of these other disciples because in verse 41, it says, um, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, there's a couple interesting things that we can note here. First of all, they heard about this. This was not discussed openly around the campfire. These guys uh, were not on the path kind of sounding out the possibilities. You know, what do you think? Uh, It wasn't something like that. This was brand new. It probably caught everybody else off guard. They're probably looking and thinking, where did they come up with this? So... James and John had been doing some planning. There's a a little bit of scheming there in secret. Uh, And then it just sprung on the rest of the disciples. The other thing is that uh, the other ten became indignant. And that seems to communicate the idea that they were concerned about their own place. If these two become one and two in the new kingdom, what does that mean for us? Where does that leave us? Are we going to serve them? And said that the larger a man truly is, the less he's concerned with his own size. But at this point, all 12 of the disciples were looking pretty small. They were all concerned about their positioning and uh, either frustrated in the asking or indignant that they didn't get there first. Um, All of them were looking pretty small. So the first of these wishes um, said no. No. To know by Jesus. And yet, he doesn't just leave it at that. He takes advantage of this situation to teach the disciples an important lesson about discipleship. So the passage continues, and, and we have a very, very precious uh, discourse here, very short, but uh, very precious discourse by Jesus about what it means to be a disciple. So Jesus called all of the disciples together, and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials 
exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's just unpack this for a minute. Um, He says, first of all, that those who are regarded as rulers, the people that that kind of put themselves in in that position, it's interesting that the Jews of that day, uh, they had a common, a universal uh, outlook or opinion of the Gentile rulers. And that's what they were. They were rulers because Rome had come in as an invading army and they occupied the places of authority. The Jews could not do anything in their own country unless the Romans gave them a, the authority or the permission to do it. So the Gentile leaders were despised. And yet these Gentile leaders that would keep the Jews under their thumb and would lord it over the Jews. That's exactly who James and John were beginning to imitate. They were intimately familiar with these guys, and yet rather than take some other model for leadership, they were looking to the Gentile leaders among them. So a great problem there. It's it's basically the politics of domination or retaliation. You know, we can, it's not too hard to see it even today. Uh, It's not just a problem in the first century in Palestine. When we look around today, and and we could look in our country or look anywhere in the world, it's the idea that um, if you slap me, I'm going to punch you. If you grab a stick, I'm going to grab a knife. If you throw rocks, I'm going to get a gun. If you plant a bomb, we're going to launch missiles. It's just one-upmanship. We're going to retaliate, and you're going to be sorry. You'll see who's who. So today, that's what dominates. That's what, uh, that's what politicians worldwide are known for. Not all, but many. And that's at the root still of many of the problems that we see in the conflicts around the world, whether it's in the Middle East or elsewhere. This idea that we can never at any cost back down We always have to have the upper hand. And Jesus is just saying, that's the way of the world. And that's not God's way. The second thing Jesus does, uh, he gives the the alternative, the the right path. He says, uh, whoever wants to become great must become your servant, even a slave. And he uses these two terms, the uh, diakonos and the doulos, the, the servant and the slave, uh, they, that must be the true model. And that's, that's astounding when you think about it. The, the lowly servant that puts his master's interest above his own, that is seeking to obey and to fulfill those wishes and not his own. Jesus is not saying here, don't become a leader. Just kind of fade into the background and, and don't, don't assume any authority. In fact, he says, if you want to become a leader. Great missionary William Carey, uh, head of the Father of Modern Missions, uh, his famous phrase was, uh, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And that's what led, the attitude is what led to much of his success. And I would say much the same thing. It's 
Jesus is not saying don't try anything, don't become a leader. He's just saying become God's leader. Become a leader in the way that God has ordained things by serving. And then he offers his own example as the supreme example. And we see that in verse 45, which again is one of the real highlights, high points in the whole book of, of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the supreme example. The servant, the household servant or the slave, that's a, that's a great example. But even more so, we could look to Jesus himself and the example that he set and the leader that he became, and that would be the example for the disciples to follow. There's a lot that we could focus on here. Uh, the idea of Jesus being a ransom, paying the price uh, that, this, that we have to have paid. We can't pay ourselves. Our debt is too great before God, and yet Jesus steps in and is willing to pay that ransom that our sin demands. But I just want to focus on the fact that of Christ's humility at this point, what, what he is giving up. The passage that comes to mind is Philippians chapter 2. If you remember that hymn that Paul wrote at that point, he says that Jesus was, in essence, God, and yet he did not insist upon his rights, but he emptied himself, and he took on the form of humanity, and he became obedient obedient even to the point of death and even death on a cross. It's a stair-step approach that Paul presents in Philippians chapter 2 that tells the many steps to Christ's humiliation. It's amazing to think no one has ever given up as much as Jesus gave up to come to the earth to serve among us, to die on the cross, on our behalf. And no one has ever done as much as what Jesus has done. So both in his exaltation and his humiliation, Jesus is our supreme example. Jesus is the Son of Man that perfectly fulfills God's interest and our best example. Well, what I would suggest at this point, it's not something that's in this part of the passage per se, but I think that we can pretty clearly infer this. When, when you think about Jesus' wish, what was he desiring at this point? Now, if you just think a couple chapters ahead, in Mark chapter 14, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he leads... Uh, his disciples in there, and he says, wait, and he goes and falls on his face before the Father and begins to pray. And as he's praying and dialoguing with the Father, what does he say? He says, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. But he doesn't leave it there. He adds a phrase which is of utmost importance. He says, yet not my will, 
but thine be done. And that makes all the difference. Jesus wasn't interested in his own desires or his own wishes as much as God's desires, God's program, God's kingdom would be furthered. And it's as if in in Mark chapter 14, we hear one side of this dialogue, and the father had just asked Jesus, what is it that you want me to do for you? And Jesus expressing this desire of his heart and knowing of the suffering that's coming about, he says, if possible, take this suffering from me. And yet, despite having that desire, that wish, even more important to Jesus was doing God's will, fulfilling God's purposes. So Jesus' wish, we would have to say, is fulfilled completely. He would offer his life as a ransom for all of us. So there's a dramatic contrast now between the two disciples, James and John, that are coming up, and they're, they're essentially wanting Christ to grant them their own little kingdoms. Can we reign a little bit? This is, this is kind of exciting. You know, we'll step into this point, and we'll, uh, we'll be kind of co-equals with you at first, and maybe we can take over, you know, if, if something happens. And Jesus isn't thinking of his own little kingdom, but he's thinking of God's greater kingdom. What God's program is, which will involve his own death on the cross. Well, like I said at the beginning, there's actually three wishes that I want to talk about in this passage, and um, there's still one more to come before we get out of this chapter. Um, Let's look at verses 46 and following. It, It says that they came to Jericho, and again, just on the outskirts of of Jerusalem, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving that city or the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, a blind man sitting at the gates of a city was a very common sight. We don't really know what the contact, the prior contact of Bartimaeus with Jesus or the disciples was. Apparently, there was something. Uh, He he knew something about Jesus. But it certainly doesn't look like anybody had ever paid attention to Bartimaeus. Anybody really, certainly not the disciples. For them, it was just one more blind beggar. They could pass by him and never give a second thought. And there he was. He didn't know much. The crowd was talking about this Jesus of Nazareth. And yet Bartimaeus knew enough to know that Jesus was not merely from Nazareth, a citizen of that city. Jesus was the son of David, which is probably the most messianic term that he could use. He was confessing Jesus. He was saying, I've got conviction that you are no mere man, but you are God's chosen one. You are the one that we have, as a nation, have been expecting. You are the one that will implement God's program here in the world. You are the Messiah. And Bartimaeus, this, this voice from the, the gutter, began shouting that. 
And he knew that Jesus as the Messiah could make a difference in his life. He didn't want just an audience, somebody to hear him out, somebody that could give him a leg up or a favor or a boost. He wanted a miracle. He wanted a miracle. He wanted mercy from the Lord Jesus. It says in verse 48 that many people rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many who rebuked him, undoubtedly the disciples included, and this rebuking is time and time again. They they just kept on saying, be quiet, be quiet. Don't you realize that, that we've got more important things going on here? And yet that was motive for him to shout even more to get Jesus' attention. And then Jesus, as so often he did, did the surprising thing. They're getting ready to enter Jerusalem. There's a crowd of people around him, all the expectation, the fear, the urgency, everything else. And Jesus hears a blind beggar and stops. Stops and says, call him. So they called to the blind man and said in four very short, abrupt, crisp words, commands, Literally, it would be like this. Okay, up. He's waiting. They didn't want to waste any verbiage on this guy. They were already giving more time than they thought that they had. So they're wanting to get this process over and done as, as quick as possible. Let's get moving, blind man. And Bartimaeus took their response, took their orientation, and he demonstrated this childlike enthusiasm and faith. He says that he's throwing his, throwing his cloak aside, his cloak that was probably spread before him to, to gather the, the offerings that would be thrown to this as he was there begging. Uh, he threw that cloak aside and, and he jumped to his feet. He didn't just stand up. He wasn't just, okay, let me see. Uh, yeah, I've been sitting here all day. The guy jumps and in Jesus' direction, a blind man jumping to his feet and came to Jesus. And then we see the question in verse 51, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you, literally has saved you, and immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now, that that question in verse 51 is interesting. You might have even heard it uh, Today, certainly this week, it's, it's possible. What do you want me to do for you? It's a very, very common question. And yet it's interesting when you begin to look through the Scriptures, it only appears twice in the Gospels. First time was in verse 36. The second time here. They're, they're like bookends to this passage. It's Jesus asking a potential follower or follower, what can I do for you? James and John blew it. Let's see if Bartimaeus has the correct answer. The blind man said, Rabbi, my Lord, my master, I want to see. And expressing his desire in that way, you think, well, it's, it's a little bit selfish. Yeah, he's asking for something that's a clear personal benefit for himself. But there's also a sense that in seeing, or or rather, 
in being blind, there was this evidence of sin in his life. And, and I don't mean to, to say by that that he had sinned, that he was somehow at fault, uh, that there was some problem that Jesus had to deal with that uh, kind of removed that problem and then he could see. But sin in our world is a evidence that, uh, or rather blindness, is an evidence that there's some sort of sin involved. Uh, there was, that wasn't the way God created things. And when we get to our eternal future, there won't be blindness anymore. We can expect that uh, the removal of blindness is uh, something that God uh, sees with great favor, that he thinks that that's, that's an expression of the kingdom uh, initiative. So there's a sense that Bartimaeus was asking for something that would be aligned with God's purposes. But even more so, I think that what Bartimaeus wanted was to be able to see Jesus and to be able to follow Jesus, to not be able to, to not be limited to the gates of Jericho or to that one particular profession. Because Jesus turns to him and says, go, your faith has saved you. And yet, even though Jesus said, go, Bartimaeus followed. Jesus told other people to follow him, and they left. They went their own way. It would have been very understandable for Bartimaeus to go to his family, to go to his acquaintances, to go somewhere else. And yet, he wanted to be with Jesus, and he followed Jesus along the road. Well, I think the... the the stark contrast here is between Bartimaeus and the two disciples. The two disciples coming to Jesus with their fat resume and thinking, we've got it in the bag, it's, it's a done deal, uh, surely Jesus is going to do this for us. And Bartimaeus pulls out his resume and there's only one line on it. It says, blind beggar, nothing else. The two are probably thinking, we just need a little boost here and a little favor. We're, we're already kind of high up, and we just want to take that next step, and Jesus is the one that can help us do that. And Bartimaeus thinking, there's no hope for me. I need mercy. I don't need a favor. The two perhaps thinking that um, if we can kind of scheme and plan this and, and get it all planned out, and it'll just be kind of a a thing that will roll out and, and nobody will be the wiser. And Bartimaeus has this childlike faith. He's whining before Jesus. He, he can't be shut up. The disciples, everybody is trying to keep this guy quiet. And yet he's so open with his faith, with his desires. But the biggest contrast is that the two disciples, they're wanting their own little project. They're wanting God to, to bless that, to favor them so that they can grow and somehow be honored or glorified. And Bartimaeus thinking, honor, glory, everything is to God. To God be the glory. To Jesus be the honor. Tremendous contrast. Which leads me to think of some applications for us. Because we're, we're in the situation now that these disciples were. 
There, there's a very real sense that we're on the road and Jesus is getting ready to engage us. And, and we're going to hear that question, what is it that you want me to do for you? The first thing that I would suggest is to think about the list that you have. Think about the, the desires, the hopes, the aspirations that you have for 2013. What is it that you're, you're wanting to, to achieve or maybe would like to have happen during this year? I certainly am not going to say just reject all that and be this passive leaf in the wind. No, it's okay to have desires. Okay to express those before God. It's okay to, to want to be a leader. But what, uh, what's on your list? What is it that you want? What priorities would you express if given this chance to put one, to put three or more before the Father? Whose kingdom is at stake? Who ultimately will be honored and glorified if these come about? It's an opportunity for reflection, to think about priorities, to begin to put things in place. The second application is, is just an observation. And it's that we, in a sense, we have a magic lamp. We, not, not a magic lamp, but we have greater than a magic lamp. Jesus instructed his disciples, said, whatever you want, whatever desire you have, ask it in prayer before the Father, and it will be done. With the important caveat, ask in my name. That Jesus be glorified, that his kingdom be favored, that his purposes be advanced. That doesn't mean we should be circumspect to the point of not asking and think, well, I don't know if it's going to fly or not. But just express those wishes before the Father. If he says no or if he says wait, it's a chance to maybe think about how we can alter some of our priorities and think about who it is that it's truly going to be honored through the result that we seek. But he says ask. And he says ask in the expectation, with the faith, that great things will be done, much greater than we can achieve of our own accord. So we can ask in prayer great things from the Father. Let's conclude our message by doing just that, just a minute of prayer here as we think about our own needs and come before the Father. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we um, come before you and we are humbled by the thought that you would give us any attention, that creator of the universe, the great God, our Savior, our Lord, sustainer of all things, sovereign, that you would look to us and ask, what do we want? Father, we give you thanks, first of all, for that. And um, Father, if if somebody has come, in, come to our church and is not sure about their salvation, uh, it's pretty clear that there's a great need in their life, that they would express that need before you, the, the blindness of their soul, and say, I want to see. I, I want to trust in Jesus. I want to be saved. 
But we pray that if somebody is at that point in their, their journey, that they would express that desire before you with expectation that you would make all the difference. But Father, there's also disciples of long standing here, people that have accomplished many things for you and have lives that are uh, have a longer track record or uh, greater experience. We pray that each of us would, uh, would also come before you with the humility, not looking to ourselves, not depending upon ourselves, but com- not self-sufficient, but in complete dependence upon you and your mercy that you would make a difference in our lives. Father, again, we give you thanks for this opportunity to come before you with this prayer. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.